This episode is dedicated to Matthew Paris, who made a ridiculously generous donation to our crowdfund campaign, which really helped to make Open Country happen. We're now over halfway to our £1,000 goal. If you would like to support us, please click the Crowdpack page on our show notes and give what you can. Then email us and tell us why you donated, and you'll hear your name at the top of an episode. If you're strapped for cash, then just rate and review us on iTunes. really excited about this episode. Claire Patey is an artist and the director of the Empathy Museum. As I say in the interview, what I love about her work is that she takes abstract ideas or messages and makes them very visually tangible. This is especially true of her latest exhibit, A Mile in My Shoes, where you take a walk in the shoes of a migrant or refugee as you listen to them tell you a story about their life. It's really an amazing experience. For the last several months, I've been helping the Empathy Museum and the Entrepreneurial Refugee Network put together a tour of the Brexit heartlands, but I hadn't taken a walk myself until just before this interview. I listened to the story of Eden, who fled to Britain from Bosnia in the early 1990s and became a successful chef and entrepreneur. Claire and I spoke in the Migration Museum, so you occasionally hear sounds from other visitors. So Claire, I'll start off with the lightning round. Yeah, is this to be recorded, or I mean, is this? Do you use this? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. What is your favourite word? Uh, crepuscular. That's, that's very cool. <laughs> favourite book? Chekhov short stories. Yeah, uh, one of the best stories I've ever read is um, Gooseberries. Yeah, I do know that. It's, you have to remind me what which one it is. Uh, so it's story within a story. Yeah, and it's someone telling a story about his brother yeah. who. He had a dream of buying a manor house beside a river yeah. and having gooseberry bushes. And he spends his whole life sort of, you know, scrimping money, marries into money. And then sort of because he's so, such a miser, uh, his wife dies because she's not used to that lifestyle. And then eventually he buys a manor house that's beside a chemical factory that sort of pollutes the surrounding countryside. And the the owner he he has this gooseberry bush in this sort of polluted soil, yeah. and he he takes one of the gooseberries and eats it. And even though it tastes disgusting because of all the pollution, uh, he begins to cry because he's actually achieved his live stream. But it's so kind of tainted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like it. I really like the stories because they seem to be always full of people who have an interior life that is not visible to the people around them and I think that's kind mm. of um, that's who we are as humans favourite film I don't know if I have a favourite film I have um, different films that I like at different um, times but I do really like um, very uh, I like comedic films and I like very narrative driven films I like um, In Bruges okay <laughs> <laughs> It's a surprising choice. I, I didn't think you'd go there. <laughs> but I, I mean, I like all sorts of films. Yeah. Leningrad, Cowboys Go America is a Finnish I'm, film that I really like. I haven't seen that one. I like some of the Coen, but I like Fargo. I Far, like, yeah, Fargo's great. Yeah. Which fictional character do you most identify with? I have absolutely no idea. Um, 
when you ask me that question, I go immediately to children's literature, and I don't know why that is. Maybe that's because that's so kind of deep, yeah. deeply in your psyche from being a child. And then I think about um, Winnie the Pooh or something, and then I think how, as a child, I probably identified massively with Tigger because it was such a like upbeat com- comedy character that was so full of energy and got everything wrong and whatever. But uh, I also understand the um, kind of characteristics of Eeyore. I really, I really get that. Um, maybe I'd like to be the owl because it's wise. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. If I think of a better answer during the next 20 minutes, I'll let you know. <laughs> Who is your real life role model? I'm very inspired by very um, strong women who do things that I potentially couldn't possibly do, like um, uh, Mary Colvin, who was a war reporter, who was just kind of um, like fearless, but with an amazing sense of humour, had incredible, incredibly sociable, talked about, um, you know, being in incredibly dangerous situations but in a way that was kind of super inspiring in terms of why she was there and how reporting is very important. She also talked about wearing amazing underwear when she was in these things. <laughs> she was quite a kind of extraordinary... Uh, there's an artist called Louise Bourgeois who I think is amazing and I think um, her work's incredible and just the way that she talks about her work. I like... Um, if we're talking about artists, I, I also... Um, was just in a conversation about Jeremy Della and I quite often think, oh, I wish I'd had that idea. It's something that I, I, I think his ideas are fantastic. After 2016, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? I am probably an optimist at heart, but I'm troubled and I feel like I would like to be part of trying to do something about it. Of all the people you know personally, Whose minds would you most like to change? Whose minds? Yeah. Uh, personal. Yeah. Personal. Well, it was really interesting. I was talking about it over Christmas, and we were talking about it in, in relation to the Man in My Shoes project I'm just um, involved with. And I actually realised that I don't know anyone personally who um, voted for Brexit. I don't know anyone personally who voted for Trump. And I, but I'm around a lot of people who have been in the situation where they've had to go back to family. It was around Christmas, we were yeah. talking about, and they were dreading the conversation around the dinner table, both Americans I knew who were going back to America and people in the UK. And But that doesn't make me feel kind of better. It doesn't yeah. make me think, oh, I wish I could change those people. It makes me feel like, oh, my God, how come I don't know any of those people? My, the circles that I operate in must be so small that that's a terrible reflection on me. So maybe part of my mission is to get to know people more whose minds I would like to change. I mean, I guess that kind of answers the next question, which was, when did you last change your mind? I think I change my mind all the time, and I think um, that it's very important to be able to admit that you're wrong and to learn from what happens around you and to constantly be re-evaluating things and thinking that you might be wrong about something and that doesn't seem to be very popular in the world of especially politics and just listening to people recently kind of appearing to say sorry but without actually saying sorry I'm just amazed by it or that 
at the admission that you might have got something wrong. Whereas in a kind of creative process, that's what you're doing all the time, mm. is saying, that was a failure. How am I going to learn from that and do something a bit different next time? And I think that um, actually it would be very, it would be great if, if in schools we were taught a little bit more about failure being positive. In like the current climate, it seems that to not be wrong, to not be seen to be wrong mm. is rewarded. Mm-hmm. rather than trying to be right totally which may different. involve reassessing what you believe in mm-hmm. sort of everything like that and even to pause to think about even in something like this or you mm. see it in the media all the time the idea that you should um, leave a gap where you might be thinking about what your response is is mm. even a kind of failure it's a failure of communication or being sure about you, you don't seem very convinced by what you're saying or whatever. There's an amazing moment where Rowan Williams is being um, interviewed by, I think, John Humphreys on the Today programme, and there's this pause where he is literally, you can hear him thinking about And I think that's fantastic, but I think there's, there's also this kind of sense of panic in the um, studio that he's not going to say something <laughs> or that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. And um, I actually think that's it. If there were a few more role models like him... Mm. That would be amazing. If you weren't doing what you do now, how else would you try to make the world a better place? Um, I think I would like to be either... uh, I've got three answers. I would like to (laughs) either be a fantastic um, uh, chef. I would like to cook food for people. And I don't know how that would make the world a better place other than I would would have a lot of... um, stuff about sustainability and around healthy eating and about maybe accessible access to food um, or I would like to be an anthropologist, I would like to be in the world of research, world of academia or I would like to have a, an amazing skill as a singer and just cheer people up <laughs> <laughs> all, all three good answers so to sort of get into it when and why were you drawn to art? I think at school um, partly because I had a fantastic art teacher and it was to do with the space of the art room and feeling that that was outside of anything that was kind of bound by the same rules as the rest of the school. Not that it wasn't disciplined because it was, we weren't allowed to talk and all of that. It wasn't like a kind of hippie room where we were listening to music and we could just do whatever we wanted. But it seemed a space where ideas could come about that could challenge uh, the kind of perceived um, wisdom that was being imparted in the in the rest of the curriculum and that there wasn't a right answer somehow. Mm. It wasn't that you could just learn that and then you could be right about it and pass an exam. It was a place where you could question, explore ideas and that there would be some personal expression that would come through. And I think the same about drama, actually. I, I was drawn to the arts in general. Mm. And music too. I played instruments, but and I was part of a choir. And I think that actually there's there's been some research in school that looks at people's experience of school and how much they enjoyed it. And quite often, it doesn't matter what kind of school you went to and where it was. It, your enjoyment is directly in proportion to how much you were involved in something outside of the curriculum. So if you were in the choir or the football team or the drama club or whatever, it, it would be something like that. And I think. That is what gave me my sense of identity as a child and, and, and a, a sense of kind of belonging to something that um, 
you could work with other people and create something that was bigger than the sum of, of your parts, if you like. So I think what I love about your work is that it has clarity as well as a purpose. You, you seem to make people conscious of sort of truths about their lives in a sort of a very visually tangible way. Uh, I'm sort of thinking of installations like Human Footprint or um, sort of Old Dog New Trick, mm -hmm. uh, not to mention sort of A Mile in My Shoes. Why were you interested in this kind of art? Uh, and sort of what was the creative process behind those exhibitions? I think what I do is I come up with ideas for things and what I then need to do is to clarify that idea so that I can then express it very clearly, perhaps in a sentence, so that anybody could understand it. And I think that's important because it, it um, not only makes it clear for me, it then makes it clear for all of the people who I collaborate with in order to produce that. And that could be anyone from a psychologist to a choreographer to a farmer to a um, historian for instance mm. but then it's about the audience so at some point then you're, I'm going to have an audience um, that interact with that work and for me it's important that whoever the visitor or the audience is they're playing a kind of active role in the creation of the work alongside me and alongside the team so therefore whatever the idea is needs to be clear for the, the, the collaboration, the team, and for the audience. And in, if you're going to involve the audience, you have to know what your invitation to them is. And they have to understand what that invitation is too. Mm -hmm. So there's something about um, the clarity of the idea and then the spirit in which you approach the creation of that idea. And if that spirit is right and that there's an integrity and a... Um, a truth that runs through the whole project that is um, in line with that original intention, that's when you can, um, I think, produce something that works. I mean, I guess the sort of stereotypical sort of popular idea of the artist is mm. sort of um, a canvas of sort of abstract oblongs and yeah, yeah. sort of people look at it and say, what does it mean? It's, a, it's war. Mm. Um, whereas sort of with your work so I sort of think of, of like um, the human footprint all the cups of tea that everyone will drink in their life mm. and all displayed as sort of an ordinary person who would see the exhibit would immediately grasp the the scale of the message behind it yeah I hope so I mean that is the idea that it's accessible that that it's fun mm. <laughs> there's a playfulness around it and that it is understandable like quite immediately but normally that comes from a point where you're um, where, where I am um, as a starting point taking some kind of uh, question or trying to interrogate some kind of idea it's not coming from my own sense of my personal identity for instance that's not what I'm looking at um, and I I mean I studied philosophy before I studied art mm. and then I went straight into working um, with as an artist in residence within the environmental movement. So in a way, I was um, tasked with looking at some of the themes that they were campaigning around and saying, okay, how can we make a cultural response to some of those uh, more political campaigns? So something like road building or whatever, I started to take a step back from that and look at perhaps our cultural relationship with the car and everyone has a relationship with the car. So how do we um, take that idea and then create 
a piece of work that's accessible for everyone, but that is questioning ultimately how we interact and relate to our vehicles. So we're sitting in the Migration Museum in Lambeth. We have just launched a new version of Mile of My Shoes. Mm -hmm. uh, can you sort of explain the, the exhibit in sort of more detail? Yeah, the Mile of My Shoes exhibit. Yeah. The Mile in My Shoes exhibit is part of um, a bigger project called the Empathy Museum. The idea is to, to give people the opportunity see, to see the world um, through someone else's eyes, from someone else's perspective, and to come into contact perhaps with people that they may not in their everyday life, because we tend to surround ourselves with people who are very like us. And we don't reach outside those circles, and those circles are um, within our social worlds, within our family worlds, within our um, online worlds too. And so uh, it, it, it's about kind of practicing the art of empathy. When I was listening to people describing what empathy meant to them, most people describe it as either um, uh, seeing the world through somebody else's eyes or walking in someone else's shoes. And I just had the idea of taking that metaphor and making it literal and opening a shoe shop where you would come in as a member of the public and be fitted with a pair of shoes that belong to a stranger. And you would um, put on those shoes and you don't know who they belong to. You know the name of the person, so I might give you John's shoes. And then you would go out for a walk in John's shoes whilst you listen to the voice of John that we'd recorded talking to you about his life. And John could be anyone from a sheep farmer to a refugee to a sewer worker to a drag queen. As we've sort of discussed before, these stories aren't about being a migrant or a refugee. They're universal stories about sort of love and loss that just happen to be told by migrants and refugees. Uh, I just, on my walk, listened to the story of Eden, which I kind of identified with uh, because he talks about sort of you know, trying to start your own company and the, and the risks of all that involved. Which story have you most identified with? From the migration yeah. version. Um, there's stories where I um, find points of connection because of experiences that I have e I've had in my life. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I have experienced, obviously, the same things. There's... Um, uh, someone called Kamal who's given a story and his story is absolutely the opposite of mine he's had a, um, a series of very full on things happen to him that have been incredibly challenging and he's been homeless and he's been um, the victim of uh, abuse and all sorts of other things but it's I think in the way that he tells his story and in the way that he is as a person and his sense of humor comes through, his sense of warmth comes through, the, the sense of the way that he thinks about the world comes through. And I found myself really connecting with the way that he tells the story. And, and there is a, a love element in his story that I can relate to and themes to do with home, belonging, not belonging, um, that I can begin to... Uh, and and, and he, I mean, it's ultimately part of the story is to do with his sexuality and um, the fact that that is, was not acceptable to his um, family and especially to his father. And it's, um, it's awful what happens. And I don't have any experience of that. But by seeing that through his eyes, I think it began to challenge the way that um, perhaps 
uh, I think I think because I've grown up in quite a liberal um, space and I live in London that's kind of very mixed and diverse and rich community that I live in where a lot of the people that I know are from families where it's completely acceptable for their children to be gay and for them to have um, relationships and children out of wedlock and whatever, whatever. Um, it's kind of incredibly shocking when you hear someone describe um, that relationship that, that went on. But it, it, uh, I suppose uh, it wasn't because I identified with the story. It's that I identified with him as a person. I felt like a connection with him as a person. Mm. And yet I found it... Um, quite difficult to listen to and very moving and I met him last night actually and it was really really lovely to I think it's an incredibly generous act of the people who are giving their stories and um, giving them um, uh, in a way that um, other people can experience them and um, I don't know what was it like so having just gone through the the experience Mm -hmm. myself because because it's audio mm. and they are people that you don't know mm. your kind of imagination sort of runs wild about who they are yeah, what they yeah, look yeah. like yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. what was it like actually meeting them compared to what you'd imagine listening it's, to the story it's very i mean i have had that all the way through this um project i suppose um if can i just go back one yeah. um because I suppose in terms of something that's really, it's not to do with the migration project, but in a mile in my shoes, one of the stories that really did uh, change my perceptions, I think, was the story from an Australian sex worker. And I put on the shoes and they're very high black stilettos with gold and I would never wear those shoes anyway. But then I felt like there was all sorts of kind of um, feelings about wearing those shoes, actually, because they almost quite stereotypical about how you imagine a sex worker. So I'd kind of gone into my mind with a whole kind of, you put them on and I have a stereotypical, and then her story completely shook my preconceptions about what it would be to be a sex worker. And I haven't thought about sex work in the same way since I listened to the story. And I suppose that, that more than... I think my response earlier about Kamal isn't... I haven't quite thought that through in the same way as... As that story, I could answer the Kamal one again if you want. If you want, I didn't. I didn't didn't feel I was very articulate about it. I think it doesn't. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that I don't think you have to have shared the same experiences, but you can share something of the same humanity as someone. Mm. And because they're telling you their story and it's very intimate, and you're really listening, and you're wearing their shoes, there's something where you are transported into their world. And if you can find points of connection, because you feel like they share your warmth or your sense of humour or your sense of what it is to be in a relationship. You only need a few points of those connection um, to feel like you're in their world and that you can understand their world. So then when they say something that's completely outside, you feel like you can actually begin to empathise with the horror of that situation at the same time. So the Empathy Museum and the Entrepreneurial Refugee Network Mm. uh, will be taking... A Mile in My Shoes on tour later this year. What do you hope to achieve with the tour and where are you planning on going? I think that for this tour it's going to be a little bit different than um, what we've done in the past. It seems to me that um, public discussion around issues to do with migration can often be very polarised 
and that can very quickly descend into people kind of running back to their corners and vitriol, basically an insult. And um, what we wanted to do was to have the experience of the Mile in My Shoes and then work with the Entrepreneurial Refugee Network to kind of open up a, a space around that experience for discussion about some of the more um, the broader issues. Mm. And I think if we could make that work in, in a successful way or in an interesting way, then um, the facilitation of the discussion that would come out of the experience that people would have just had could be very, very powerful. And I, th- I suppose it's about taking mine in my shoes and then um, taking that a step further. Finally, how can listeners support Mile in My Shoes either in London or on the tour? By coming to it. And you can go and um, see where it's going next on our website. Um, if you happen to be a millionaire, you could fund it. <laughs> <laughs> Or you could offer your story, or you could host it in your town. I think, um, or if you're a, um, if you know someone who would be a good storyteller for it, you could suggest that. Or if you're an audio producer, you could um, come and work with us on the collection of the stories. Or I, we're also very, very open to ideas. If someone thinks it would be great to put it on a cliff top in Wales or something, just get in touch. <laughs> Claire, thank you very much. Thank you. Mile in My Shoes is at the Migration Museum on Lambeth High Street until Sunday the 25th of February. If you're a listener in London, please go before it closes. If you want to find out more about the Empathy Museum, the link to their site is in the show notes. Again, if you'd like to help Open Country reach its £1,000 fundraising goal, please click the Crowdpack link on the notes. Or just rate and reviews on iTunes, as that does more than you may think.